just a hair past 7 o'clock on a hectic Monday in the sports world. It's time for Iron Sports 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. And Ira, I think a lot of golf fans woke up uh, pretty darn happy today. The only people happier than us is probably that guy who bet the uh, 85 grand to win $1.2 million on Tiger Woods. But I know you're excited about after yesterday. Well, I mean, what a day. It's like one of those days in sports that transcends sports, that people who don't really follow golf, who don't really follow sports, it's much greater. I mean, Tiger Woods is an icon. I mean, debating who was the greatest sports icon of ever. But the fact is everybody knows who he is. Name recognition is off the charts. And people know his, his journey, the journey of being the, the, one of the, the youngest great uh, champions, uh, the greatest of all time besides Jack Nicholas chasing this record, and then the time with, when he wasn't winning, with the injuries, everything. And, uh, and for him to come back, and, and it, we saw this. I mean, I've been walking with him last year at tournaments. This year I was at Riviera for five rounds, uh, walking with him. I saw the improvement. You see that he was yeah, everything. I mean, the big credit for this is, of course, Tiger, but Dr. Richard Geyer from the Plano Institute, back Institute. I mean, Tiger had back fusion surgery. Surgery. I mean, people that I've known of fusion surgery, they can't even bend over. They can't yeah. move. Tiger won the Masters with back fusion surgery. This doctor's amazing. The work he did with Tiger was tremendous. It's one of the, the probably the greatest surgeries I've ever you could ever imagine in terms of what he did. Um, and he should get a lot of credit for putting Tiger in the position to become to win this. Uh, but it was just a great day, and I loved it. I mean, the whole week, the whole Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday was amazing because you saw it building, you saw it building, and you wanted it to happen, and, and he came through and did it. No, absolutely, you're right. And, and what you said, you know, this was kind of like a Super Bowl of sorts. You know, I, I was at a party for this, and there's people who probably haven't watched a, a whole of golf in, you know, the, the last decade, and they were glued to the TV, just like it would be um, at something like the Super Bowl. So we're going to talk all about that, plus two great guests with us today. Ira, first is going to be John Graham, right around 720. Tell us about John. John is one of the top putting gurus. Um, he works with a lot of the pros, including Charles Howe III. He was at the Masters this weekend. He has invented different ways about putting. Um, we're certainly going to talk to him about putting in general, but also because he was at the Masters and saw what was going on and could give an in- insight in terms of the players and, and everything. So I think he's a really good uh, guy, considering that he, he has worked with so many of the top pros in both the PGA Tour, the LPGA Tour. He's been golfer of the year. He was actually coached at junior college, was a national champion for many years at, in junior colleges. So he's a really famous golf instructor. I actually met him at the Honda Classic and talked to him for a long time. And he was on the green working with all the guys out there with these crazy contraptions about how to improve their putting. And uh, so I think it'd be great to have him on the show and, and just his, his insight from a teaching pro uh, being there and working with these pros about what happened on Saturday and Sunday. And then it gets, um, it gets even better. We're going to have Todd Parnell joining us at 750. Tell us about him. Todd has uh, been a longtime general manager in the minor league baseball. Uh, many teams he's been the general manager of. Currently, he's the general manager and COO and the president of Montgomery Biscuits, who's the Tampa A double A team, and also the Richmond Squirrels uh, in Richmond, Virginia, uh, the San Francisco double A team. He's probably one of the most connected, knowledgeable uh, baseball people in the entire country. He's fun to talk to uh, and knows everything. And I, I can't wait to pick his brains on also these things that we've been talking about is technology in terms of how, I mean, really, that's what's happening in the minor leagues. These uh, players are all, it's very computer geeky oriented in terms of what they're doing to, to learn how to hit and pitch and understand things. And, and he's probably at the forefront of that. And minor league baseball is moving. I mean, this past week, 
Uh, if you look at the attendance figures at the Marlins Park, it's like six, 7,000. I've never seen attendance numbers like they have. And then you look at minor league baseball, and you have teams that are, are many teams that have more than the Marlins. And these are in, in teams, towns like Richmond and Montgomery. So minor league baseball is booming across the country. And Todd will give us a good idea about why and, and give us some ideas about where he sees baseball going. Ira, we always like to start the show off like this. Where have you been? Um, I was at Dwayne. I mean, I cannot believe that Dwayne Wade's final game, which is so tremendous, can be overshadowed by uh, everything that happened in sports this week. But he did. It got overshadowed even on the day of his game by Maddie Johnson retiring or resigning. So it's a shame, but it was a, it was a great game. Like I was so moved to be at that game, and it was tremendous. And I just feel bad that the fact on the day that Dirk Nowitzki retired, and also the day Dwayne Wade, like it's sort of like lost in this whole shuffle of the Masters and NBA season starting and HL and everything that we forget that one of the greatest players to ever play the game uh, retired at a very moving. I mean, the, the fans at Miami gave him the send-off he deserved. It is legendary, and it was tremendous to be there. And I'm so glad that someone who's watched. Uh, so many of his games in person and, of course, on TV. To be there in that arena, uh, just amazing. Um, all right, Ira, let's talk about it. The Masters is in the books. We've got a champ that he's worn the green jacket before, and he's looking as good as he ever has, um, especially since some of these up and downs. Tiger Woods is your 2019 Masters champ. Just for people to understand a little about Tiger, I mean, I think people think that after the 2011 and all the issues that that was like it, like that, then, then he hadn't won anything, but people forget that. I mean, not only was in, you know, he first on the scene in 97 and from when he won the masters and then from 99 to 2000, he won all four majors in a row He was majors in 2001 and 2002. And in a period of time up to 2006, seven, he's winning almost major almost every year. Of course, number one forever. Uh, and then he had the 2011 incident uh, we talk about in terms of the, the, the scandals and the tabloids and things like that. But, uh, but that was right after he had won at Torrey Pines, Rocco Mediate, the last major he won uh, against Rocco Mediate and, and for the U.S. Open. But he came back in 2013 after breaking his leg, winning that tournament, all the scandals, and he was number one in the world. Now he's fourth in the Masters, sixth in the, in the U.S. Open. Uh, he had won five tournaments that year, was number one in the world. But in 2014, in West Palm Beach, at the Honda, when I was there at that, he, he quit on the 13th hole with his back. And that's when that whole idea with his back problem started. He couldn't even play the Masters of the U.S. Open that year. And then in 2015, another back injury. Uh, and then he was like, didn't make the majors. And then 2016 and 17, he had two more back surgeries. To the point where in 2017 at the Masters dinner, he couldn't even make it without an epidural injection, just even just show up at a dinner. To think that two years later, he's winning the tournament and he couldn't even make it. He went and had spinal fusion surgery in April 2017, just hoping that he can live a normal life. Forget about golf. I mean, he said his comments is that I thought it was done. It was over. I'm finished. I'm not playing ever again. I'm even thinking about playing again. And he went to the President's Cup later and, and walked around. But the fact that he had that in April 2017... Uh, it was just amazing. But then last year, you know, he was 32nd in the Masters. He, uh, he uh, was 6th in the British Open, 2nd in the PGA. He won the players. So you saw it coming. But, I mean, it, it's just, it's just a, this is the comeback of all comebacks because of, of everything. But also the injuries, the fact that his back, he had four back surgeries and he, he's at, at, in, in his 40s. And he was able to come back from a, a fusion surgery. Uh, just tremendous. I mean, the only thing I can remember is when Peyton Manning was at the Colts. 
in the Indianapolis Colts, and he had, and people thought his career was over, and that's why the Colts released him, and he had uh, neck fusion surgery, and he went back and then played at Denver and was able to be the MVP of the league and win the Super Bowl. Uh, just, I mean, similar situation, but just, just an amazing comeback. I think people are thinking it's all the scandal issues with him, but it's, it's the surgeries he had on his back. I mean, nobody ever comes back from injuries like this and is able to play at this high level. All right, Ira, so the field really didn't make it easy on Tiger. There was a lot of guys playing really good, and like we were talking about on Saturday and Sunday, every time you looked up, the leaderboard had changed. People were going for it. Uh, Let's start at day one. Well, the day one, I think what is the main thing that happened on day one is that Tiger missed short putts. I mean, if you look at his day, uh, I mean, Brooks Koepka took the lead at 600. Now, Brooks, of course, has won two of the last three majors, and then the guys in the final the group with Tiger on Sunday – Molinari and Kepka, they were the three major winners. So, they're, and they're not afraid of Tiger. But the fact is that Tiger, uh, he had a short miss for a par on on uh, on, the, on six. He had a short miss on seven for for par. A short miss where he had hit in for birdie. And a short miss on eight. On six, seven, eight, he was missing short putts the whole time. And uh, on seventeen, he actually bogeyed, and and so he finished minus two. So everyone looks at day one, and, and Kepka's at six under. Tiger's at two under, and you're like, ah, Tiger just played an average day. But he played really well. I watched the course of the whole round, and he, he was amazing. And we had Andrew Catalan on our show, and I love watching the Tiger, the uh, Masters live, and was able to get information with it. But um, it, was a, it was an interesting day. Some people, Justin Rose uh, and Jordan Speed had plus threes and sort of like finished there. They were, they, and Paul Casey was a, was, a, was, a plus, was a plus nine, and we're out of the tournament. So some of the golfers that we thought were going to do well in this tournament, uh, and, and Rory was a plus one and really out of the, out of the field in terms of making it. But uh, that first day, anyone who watched Tiger said, he's like, great, we just missed all those short putts. And that's what I'm saying. If you've got those short putts going, he'd been, he might win this tournament by five or six turns. Um, okay, um, let's talk about day two. And, you know, one of the talks of, of all weekend was Francesco Molinari not making mistakes, and this was another day where he just looked really good. Uh, Friday was it. He, he, was, he shot 700 for the day, 18 bogey free holes. He was 234, then at 33. Um, Jason Day, who on Thursday was like his back was bothering him, everything was terrible, he had lifted his child up, and uh, and Jason Day and 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 it couldn't even move, and he thought he was going to quit for the tournament. He's now in the lead at seven mm. under. Kepka ended at seven under. Scott was seven under. I mean, it was amazing how you had all these guys in the mix in terms of what was happening. And Dustin Johnson uh, was at six under. So it finished with this with a with a great day. Uh, Friday was great for Tiger because it was just funny is that he on. Uh, he was it just just a weird weird. I mean, he was starting to make the birdie putts. He started to putt better and did everything what he what he was supposed to do. And then on twelve, he had a he had a par three within ten feet of the hole. And then the horn blew. And I thought it was like a great thing where he actually walked over to the twelfth hole, and he was playing with um with uh with Rom and Lee, the very fiery guys that stood there. They couldn't tee off, and he had to mark his ball. And it's like one of the marshals came over and said, don't mark it, you know, you have to run to your tent. He's like, no, I want to mark my ball. And so he was standing on the 12th uh, green all by himself, like standing there looking at his putt. I thought that was a great view of like him doing it. Well, everybody else had to clear the course. And then he came back on and played once it rained, and he missed the putt. He actually, mm-hmm. uh, he, 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 uh, he didn't make that putt. But, uh, but I thought on this tournament could have been over on 14. 
His tiger was in the trees. He hits out of it, and a security guard rushes to stop the crowds. But the crowds weren't going after Tiger. But this happens all the time. And he slipped and fell, going over-anxious, and, and almost crashed into Tiger's ankle. I mean, he could have broke his ankle right there, and this never would have happened. Crazy. Yeah. I ended up <laughs> you know, looking, holding his ankle, but he ended up burning the hole and, uh, and then finishing minus five. And then on 15, he was able to get another birdie and go to six, six under. And then on 17, he hit a shot that was just Amazing. One of the best things. It was very, but that was then ridiculous. He, that. I mean, he should have been at seven under then, but he missed a short putt. But, uh, but then he ended up for the day. He was, he was at, uh, at six under and, and, and sort of just, you know, just, uh, just set really up for a good weekend on Saturday. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is 95.9, the True Oldies channel. It's 7.15. I'm Mike Balsamo. We're talking golf, and we're going to be talking to one of the leaders in uh, golf instruction, John Graham, in just about five minutes. Going to be a great guest. All right, Ira. Take it to Saturday. Moving day really lived up to its well, name. I've never seen again, a Saturday like again, this. Again, you had Molinari playing great. Third, he finished around 13 under. Finau, Tony Finau was at, third, was, at, was at 11 under and playing amazing. And uh, Kepka at 10. I mean, you kept looking. I think the story of this was a leaderboard. You had Kepka at 10 under. Finau at 11. Simpson at 9. Ian Poulter at 9. DJ uh, uh, at 8 under. Dustin Johnson. I mean, Adam Scott at 7 under. You had people that won majors. Ricky Fowler was a 7 under. I mean, everybody was sort of in the mix. Spieth was out of it. Rory, Rory Mackler was out of it. Patrick Reed. But even Phil Mickelson was at 6 under just hanging in there. And it was interesting that Tiger was paired with Ian Poulter. And Ian is definitely, I think the, during, I think the people, like these are really guys that, Polar gets a, the European players that are used to Ryder Cup, they're used to yelling at the crowds. They, they were, I think, perfect to be paired with Tiger. And I think that might have helped Tiger out a little bit because you watch them, like when they missed shots, they were mad. Like they were, they're very intense. Uh, players. I mean, every he played with those on the first three days were intense, and certainly the people he played with on the silent day was intense too. But I mean, the fact that on on five he bogeys five, he bogeyed five, and he went in the fairway bunker on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, and bogeyed it every single time. I mean, it's unbelievable. He takes those four strokes out from that hole, and it's not really that wasn't you know that was a, it played hard. But it's funny that he was going in that fairway bunker every time. But then he birdies six, seven, eight. 13, 15, six straight birdies afterward um, was just uh, was just tremendous. I mean, and then he starts dropping the long putts, and uh, I mean, it was just it, that was what was exciting about how he was able. I mean, even on eight, he almost missed an eagle, and he, and he and he hit a birdie there. And then on eleven, he had a horrendous drive in the woods, and this is where he broke his club. The scene they keep showing in 2007, he broke his clubs, but he was able to go and, and get in and get a par on that hole. And uh, and then on twelve, he tapped it in, but uh, on thirteen, you know, I, I it just Every, it seemed like he was playing everything perfectly. He was in the middle. He was in the fairway almost every drive, uh, getting to the green, hitting it where he had to be. Just uh, And then at, at, on, um, on 16, he actually birdied on 16. And at that point, he was 11 under, and he had the lead of the tournament. And, then, and you're like, oh, my gosh, okay, now he's set to go because he has the lead. But, of course, Molinari was playing behind him in, that, in, that group, in the groups behind him. But uh, uh, it was just... But I think at, at the end of the day, I mean, he was the best round since he had 2000 and 2011 finals. Uh, he finished at 11 under. So it's Molinari at 13, Finau and himself at 11 under, and everybody else, like, right behind him, all there. So that's what set it up for this Sunday. And you know what? It's funny, Ira. So many excellent scores on Saturday. Pa- Patrick Cantley, I think, was uh, 10 under on Saturday. So I'm going into Sunday like, man, this is going to be crazy. There's going to be some really low scores. And it just wasn't the case. Well, I think what, I mean, the pressure of Sunday, I mean, to see Tiger in his mock, 
Then he comes out on Sunday with the with the red and uh, the red shirt and the and the black pants and just the classic Tiger look. And the one thing that scared me, I, and I I said I thought Molinar was going to win. Uh, two thousand six. He looked good. Uh, Masters in the two thousand six Masters. Molinari had a caddy for his brother, and there's these great pictures of Molinari being a caddy and then watching it. But last year at the National, which was Tiger's tournament, Molinari shot a twenty one under for the tournament, sixty two in the final round, and Tiger shot a great round of sixty six. But he was ten strokes back, and the second place was thirteen under in the British Open. Molinari won last year. He was eight under. Woods was at five. And then the Ryder Cup, he played against Tiger three times and beat Tiger. Now, they were in pairs and groups and everything, but he beat him all three times. So I was not, you know, Molinari, I thought, was really like, he's used to Tiger. He knows he can win. I mean, he's an older golfer himself. He's 36 years old. So he's used to this, but he's but he came on late. But he was not going to flinch at this. And then you have Kepka, who was the best. I mean, Kepka's won four golf tournaments in his life, and three of them have been majors. So he was certainly prepared to to uh, to to be ready to win this. And so these are the most unflappable golfers that Tiger had to go against. So that's what scared me about his chances to uh, to do anything. I mean, he part and he part eleven, and then uh, and then and then on two, uh, he actually parred that again. That was a huge. It could have been a bogey there. But then on three, he made a birdie. A, a birdie. But on four. See, I was nervous that you're wondering, like, in all these matches, could Tiger, like, get bounced back from his bogey? So on four, he bogeys, but then on five, he comes back and, and birdies, but then he bogeys again on six. So it was, it was just on five again, but it was, it was, it, he bogeyed five every single uh, day. Uh, but it was like on, on, on six, that, uh, on seven, uh, he had his probably best shot of the tournament when he went right down and to the, to the, uh, the hole was only, it was, uh, like a few inches away. And then that's when Molinari finally, finally bogeyed a hole and Tiger birdied it. And that was able, that was like a two shot swing. And, uh, but of course the, 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 uh, the, the change of the whole tournament was on 11, was, uh, uh, was on, was on 12 when, uh, when you saw on 11 before, if you're watching it on TV, you saw where uh, Kepka hit in the water, Poulter hit in the water on, on a par three because they weren't where the wind was coming back. So they go to 12, and Molinari hasn't made a mistake, hardly anything. He goes and hits it in the water. And then Tiger smartly says, I'm going to hit it. You know, and it went in doubt, is the comment I think Jack Lucas said, went in doubt, hit it between the, the stand traps. So he hits it on there, gets it on. Then Finau hits it in the water. So Molinari ended up double bogeying, and, and on the other hole, Poulter and uh, Kepka had double bogeyed. Molinari double bogeyed, Finau bo- double bogeyed, and so that left in a situation where Shoffley was 11 under, Molinari 11 under, Woods 11 under, Day 10 under, Watson 10 under, Rom 10 under. I mean, it was crazy. My mom called me. I said, this Canelay is going to win the tournament. Like, she was all nervous. So it was, it was just crazy. But I think Tiger was benefited by because he was in the final group. I felt good because whenever I saw people ahead of him getting uh, on the par fives, getting birdies, I'm like, he has a chance to do that. That's what he's going to do. And that he know, I think it's easier when you're, of course, it's easier when you're seeing what everyone else is doing and you're able to get those holes that are, that are playing well. And then on 13, he was able to get a birdie, huge drive on that hole. And, uh, and then he was tied again with Shoffley Monary at 12 because they had birdies. And then in 14, he has it right down in the middle and, uh, and, uh, and he taps in for par, but that was, that was great. And then, um, and then, um, and then, uh, 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 and then on, on 15, uh, he, he just missed an Eagle putt, uh, ending up birdering on birding on that. But then Molinari, so 15 is a par five Molinari punches out of the trees in pine straw and is then hits the ball in the water again. So it was like unbelievable that Molinari drops down and Tiger is able to uh, end up 
uh, just, you know, taking that lead. And on 15, at 13 under, he took control. So he's at 13, Dustin Johnson's at 12, and Shoffley's at 12, and Brooks is at 12. So that's what made it so exciting. Ira, um, but, uh, go ahead. Yes. No, go ahead. So, and then I think on 16, uh, it was without a doubt. I mean, that's when you really felt like he put an overdrive. He was at 14 under, Dustin Johnson at 12, Shoffley at 12 under. And he just sort of you know, was able to birdie 16 again, just take that lead. And when Brooks couldn't, Kepka couldn't birdie any of those final two holes, uh, it was just set up for him to just coast into the win. I mean, he said, he goes, when, when he thought he was going to win is at the end, the final shot is because when I saw Brooks bogey, uh, uh, not birdie, but, but, but yeah, I mean, I mean, not get a birdie on 17 and not on 18, knowing that he could bogey to win. That's when he was relaxed and was able to take it over. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is 95.9, the true oldies channel. It's 723. I believe we're getting uh, John Graham on the phone as we speak. Professional uh, putting and short game coach. Love to hear uh, our opinions on this. Do we have John now? Okay, I think we do have uh, John Graham on. Ira, let's bring him in. John is a uh, professional putting and short game coach. John, thank you so much for joining us. I think anybody uh, who has any level of skill in golf can use someone like you. So I think this is going to be a great interview. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks. John, uh, before we get into a bunch of questions for you, what were you? What was going through your mind last night and all day today seeing Tiger back in the winner's circle for, for the Masters? Well, I mean, that's uh, uh, no matter what you think about him, it, it, as far as it, it, his winning is just great for golf. I mean, it's great for participation. It's great for... Uh, viewership, it's great for uh, TV contracts, it's like I mean, anything in the golf industry, apparel, equipment, golf, I mean, when Tiger does well, golf and anything associated with golf is, is better, so there's, there's no question it's a big plus for the, for the industry. Um, John, so I'm a, you know, I love playing golf. I'm terrible, just like like a yeah. lot of people. Probably you look like at 20 handicap, and I look mm-hmm. at people, you know, in my area, and what they always say, one of the first things when you start playing golf is the way you get your scores lower is by having good short game. So I've come to realize that I'm never going to hit 350 yard drives. But do you think that right. anybody who puts in the time with someone like you could be eventually become an elite level short game and putter? Yeah, I mean, it, uh, the the things that separate. You know, a long ball hitter from the rest of us is a whole bunch of different mechanics and strength and speed and genetics and a whole bunch of other things. When it comes to putting in the short game, um, they're slow moving. They're uh, they're very learnable skills. There's not too much real physical athleticism required. Uh, some pattern recognition is really important. Some sensitivity, maybe hand eyes, important, especially on the short game side. But a very learnable skill. Anybody who is learning new information and learning how to adapt uh, can become quite adept at it. Um, Ira, what do you have for John? John, I guess the question is, um, uh, thanks again for coming on. I met you at the Honda Classic, and I was just telling everybody on the air that uh, you have all these contraptions, and you were working with all the top yeah. golfers at the Honda, and that's how I, I got to meet with you, and you had some really – it was very nice. You were interacting with everybody. Um, but the question sure. is, Tiger on – on Thursday was missing the short putts. And it's something he was doing this year in terms of he was, I think, last in the field and putts under between like three feet and eight feet. There was that number that, and so it's amazing that he could end up putting the tournament. But in terms of the short putt yeah. at the Masters, was there anything unique about why he was missing those putts or, or was it just difficult that day? And then, and then when, when the course got wetter in terms of on Saturday and Sunday, then he started making those putts. It was, it, was it just something with Tiger or was it something with the greens that made those short putts difficult? Uh, I, I think it's more uh, as it relates to Tiger. One, one of the things I'm sure the majority of the listeners don't know is that 
Tiger's stroke uh, is not what anybody would consider perfect in terms of if you were to measure it and look at the mechanics and the details of it. Um, he doesn't aim straight or hit it straight or do the things that you would think that should happen in a good putting stroke. Tiger tends to aim way off to the right and then kind of hoods and hooks his putts in, online. So, uh, and it's not unusual for him to kind of get off a little bit when short putts happen. And you, you probably have heard him say over the years, you know, you've got to make sure I release the toe, I've got to close this thing. Because he'll have a tendency when he gets off is that because he aims so far to the right is he'll just hit it out to the right. And he's always constantly trying to get the putter face shut enough to actually get the ball back online. And that really gets amplified on a short putt where the start line is the main contributor to whether or not the ball goes in. When you're dealing with a breaking putt, there's lots of different starting lines that can make the ball go in. Short putt doesn't have that. So your ability to start the ball exactly in the right place is even more important. And because he has that aim and start line difference, sometimes he gets a little bit off. Yeah, I mean, he was hitting those long, I mean, the whole whole um, tournament, he was great with the long putts. Yeah. I mean, it was, that was the was yeah. he, On Thursday and Friday, he, he drained a 20-footer, a 25-footer, and the classic Tiger, like, waiting for the ball to go down in the hole, and it's rolling small, uh, rolling slowly. Yeah. Um, what is there, is there something about the Masters greens that make it, what, what makes it those greens difficult, um, and, and what, is there any difference between the, green, the greens of the Masters and, like, typical tournaments? Yeah, so the, the, the main thing that makes the Masters green so difficult is the severity of the slopes and then the speed of the green. Uh, to, to kind of give you a comparison, um, for a, a green that is, let's say, a normal private club quality of a stimp 10, we'll call it. It's just a, a, a word that they use to describe how fast the green is. If the slope on the ground is a 7% grade or higher, that ball won't stand still. Now, when you take Augusta and they get stems closer to 12 or 13, uh, that would then equate to if on like a 5% slope, now the ball rolls away and won't stop. Now, Augusta's greens are very, very slopey in, in large areas with a bunch of places on the greens that they can't use because the greens are too steep. Now, where they actually cut the holes are usually not too steep, maybe 2 or 3%, but where the ball has to roll to get there, they have to go over these big tiers or down these swales, it becomes very difficult to manage because of how steep they are and how fast they are. So the ball is on the ground for a long time. Gravity is pulling on it for a long time. The ball does a lot of weird things that you won't normally see because of the amount of time the ball is rolling for. So, and then, and one thing, this sort of gets to the same point, is that the commentators on TV, I was watching like Catalan, Andrew Catalan, who we had on, so I actually had the CBS feed on and also the internet feed on, so I'm watching both at the same time, kept saying... Uh, complimenting Tiger on his intelligence, his knowledge, and everything, of course, because he's played it more and he's wanted more and there's all these things. But really, what is that? Like, where is his knowledge? Where does that, where, where is, where is that knowledge? I mean, he first of all, he has to execute the shot. So I can't just be the smartest person in the room right. and you're going to get it. But no. I mean, in terms of where does that knowledge help him the most in terms of playing, it, it, uh, it's certainly the Masters? Well, I kind of touched on it briefly. It's, it's uh, Tiger has always worked his best off of pattern recognition, being able to remember what he's done, remember what he felt, and then kind of riding that feeling or that sensation for as long as he can. And then when it comes to putting, it's, you know, I've had this foot in practice, I've seen it before over the course of the years, I know it roughly this much, I know I roughly have to hit it this hard. His ability to, to recall memories and then apply them in the present is really one of the things that separates Tiger from a lot of other players. Uh, how much time he actually spends trying to um, gather information from all of his outcomes, looking at the present, saying, okay, which one of these applies best, and then pulling from his memory and then using it 
to his advantage. It's it's a really impressive skill that he has in terms of that. Uh, he often says, like, I'm trying to p- kind of paint a picture or kind of putt to a picture. Uh, it's a lot about memory and recall and feel for him. And then it then gets back to the point of uh, the commentators that he played a conservative game. He let everyone else fall apart around him. He knew, and, and I've heard other commenters say, say this, I think Brooks said this, and they said, Tiger, when he misses, he knows where to miss his shot, and or he knows how to miss a shot to give himself the putt. Uh, talk about a little about, like, you know, knowing you're not always going to hit every, no one can hit a perfect shot, even Tiger Woods. How about the idea yeah. about missing, missing correctly, if that's the right term, I guess. Right. One of the, one of the skills that Tiger has that's, that's a little bit more unusual these days is, is Tiger really likes to curve the ball to where he wants the ball to go. So regardless of in what section the pin is on, he will curve the ball either to the left to get to a left pin or curve the ball to the right to get to the right pin. So you're generally trying to, trying to kind of start the ball toward the middle of the green and then curve it toward the corners to where the flags are. Uh, now, generally speaking, uh, once you're good enough to actually be able to do that, uh, the trick then is to make your mistake be the straighter mistake instead of the one that curves too much. So his ability to actually kind of manage the style of the mistake that he has is really what allows now his miss to be kind of a straight shot instead of a curved shot. Uh, where most of us probably, when we make our mistakes, our mistakes are more curved instead of less curved. His mistakes, he's kind of got them in a, in a much more usable place, so he aims for the middle. If he makes a mistake, he kind of hits it straight toward the middle. If he hits the shot he wants, then he curves it into the corners that he's looking for. It's, it's his ability to be able to miss straight instead of miss with curve. So we're talking to John Graham, and John, I gave your bio before. You've been the junior college coach of the year. You've had won national titles. Um, you're teaching LPGA players, PGA tours, professionals. You're, of course, at the Masters working with a bunch of pros there uh, and, uh, and, and done that. And you've also invented uh, different, all these mechanisms to improve your, your putting. I mean, you're like one of the gurus and the top of the line. You're like the Elon Musk of a putting, a putting <laughs> expert. Talk a little about the different devices you have to actually, you know, the things that what probably frustrates more anybody is this is their putting to actually improve everybody's putting from the PJ, PJ Tour pros to the average weekly golfer. Right, so the, the main advice that I, that I use and the one that you guys saw at Honda is a, is a device called a, a SAM Putt Lab, which is basically a device that allows, uh, allows me to measure exactly what the putter is doing. So we have to attach a little bit of a, a device to it and then uh, the machine kind of monitors the 3D motion of that device, both uh, up and down, left and right, and then side to side. Uh, to give me a better idea, so, okay, where is this person actually aiming? Then where does this person actually have the putter face when they hit the ball? What path is it moving on? Is it going up and down? Is the line angle changing? How fast is it going? How is it accelerating? It's a, it's a really uh, neat machine that allows me to kind of look into the very inner workings of something that's moving very, very slow and not very, very far. Um, so it, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, it's a pretty neat machine. I, you know, I use a lot of lasers and a whole bunch of other stuff, but this, I would say, is the, is the main machine that I do the diagnostic, uh, kind of checking and then rechecking, okay, we make a change, let's go back and see how it affected things. Um, it's, it's a really, really neat device that allows me just to not have to guess. If I can just measure what's going on, okay, here's how we apply this in the real world, and then kind of make this loop that goes back and forth between here's what we have, here's what we want. Now we change it. Let's check to see what this change made and just keep going through that to make sure that the person's doing exactly what they're looking for. And, and one 
final question is: well, you're, You go to these yeah. tournaments and you're working with them and uh, with the golfers and just the Masters. And I, I was once at the U.S. Open and I saw one of Jordan Spieth's uh, hitting coaches like almost redoing his entire stroke, like in the middle of the U.S. Open, like between Thursday and Friday. I'm thinking, I don't think it's the time to redo your stroke. I mean, you're 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 yeah. in the middle of the tournament. What what do you do with your pros? at like the masters when they're it's like you know the day before you're working with them on wednesday and tuesday and wednesday uh, you know you're not really saying okay let's learn a new way to putt but what 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 are you doing in terms of working with them to get ready for a tournament like the masters yeah that's a great question i i, I tend to be um uh, very conservative i guess in, at least in, in those times but the main things that that i want to make sure that are happening is that uh the person is calibrated for the distance they want the ball to go uh, because the greens are so much faster than maybe they're even they're used to. Um, they used to, you know, have a feeling of if I make this stroke, the ball goes this far, and they have to recalibrate for this stroke now goes this far. Uh, so we spend a lot of time hitting putts from uh, places that are, you know, areas where the ball will tend to collect uh, to different areas to kind of get a feel for the speed. For me, at, at a tournament site, uh, distance control, uh, green reading, kind of experimenting, uh, doing a little trial and error there. Those are the, the two main things. I, I certainly will sometimes have the machine more to kind of quiet the mind, just kind of measure things. It's okay, everything's kind of okay. Just Now we can just scrap that. Now let's get back to the work of controlling how far it goes. Let's work on reading the green. Let's work on, uh, you know, what iron shots and where we want to hit in, things like that, or, or what kind of bunker play, or where do you want to chip from, like that kind of stuff. It's much more strategic than it is technical. I, I like to do that work uh, away from the site if I can. Wow. Well, John, I really appreciate. It. I know this. You had a busy week. You had you had all these people you were working with at the Masters, and it certainly is. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, certainly, we can't wait. I can't wait to see you again next year when you come back to the Honda. Uh, and uh, okay. and I really appreciate you coming on the, on Iron Sports. So thanks a lot for coming on today. Oh, hey, absolutely appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. Hope you guys have a good time. He is John Graham joining us here on Ira on Sports, the True Oldies Channel. It's seven thirty-six. Great guest, and I hope I can get a playing lesson with him next time he's in South Florida. I could, I could definitely use it. Um, Ira, we're already way behind, but I'm sure there's still a little bit of Masters you want to talk about. I just wanted to talk about at the end of the at the end of the tournament. Um, it, I just thought it was tremendous when Tiger the, the whole Dustin position of him when he left wearing the red shirt, wearing the black, walking off. And then remembering, and I, I couldn't believe, I'm glad CBS did that, because I, I remember when he walked off the first time and, and his dad hugged him, and this time his son was the yeah. one who hugged him. And then he's walking with his son, and he's walking with his daughter and, uh, and his girlfriend, and then his mother was there. Uh, just the crowd, the emotion, the roar that he gave out, uh, just, it was just great. I mean, every, he, had a, he were cry, everyone was crying. It was just made, amazing to see that. And I just loved how all the other golfers now, there was like a dozen golfers that were there at the end when he walked off the green. I think everyone should have been there. I mean, if you're a golfer, uh, a pro golfer, you should have been there because you're flying a better plane and you're driving a better car. I mean, you're, it's because of Tiger. Tiger's built up golf so much. Um, but, and I also think my other inter- interpretations, I, I heard people debate today on the show, well, there's no Tiger effect. There's no intimidation effect. I tell you, I, they had those wide pictures. And first of all, Tiger, when you, if you see him in person, you should really try to go to tournament and see him. He is tall, and he's imposing. And when he's wearing that black and red, he's standing there. And these golfers know that he's this legend, 
And it's almost like if you're playing a basketball game and suddenly you look over and you see, that's Michael Jordan out there. Because Tiger's golf is able to play as he gets older. It's just that idea that, like, if 10 years from now, Tom Brady is quarterbacking the Patriots, there's nothing like that still playing well. So as much as these golfers are confident in their ability and they know how well they're doing it and they, whatever, they can, but it's just something about Tiger and Augusta. People, these are, they've seen it. And it, and maybe it's, they don't just choke it. That's not like Kepka hit the ball in the water or Molinari hit the ball in the water. But it is something. It is that pressure. And you have the pressure of the tournament, the pressure of the moment, and then the Tiger pressure. And the fans are louder in that one scene on, on, when he was on 16 and hit that great drive on the par three. And Kepka was on 17 and just looked at him and just was stopped and looked. And you just, that was crazy. You just saw that that had to have an effect, even on someone like Brooks Kepka. Uh, and it's great. I mean, this is what I was hoping for when Tiger came back. I just said, it's one thing. I want him to go against these young guns, all these guys that have won majors and all this, and go head-to-head with them. And he was still able to capture that Tiger magic. And that's why he is this all-time great of all sports and why it's so great to watch. And I hope he stays healthy. And I hope he, you know, he's going to be, I'm going to watch him at Beth Page uh, for the PGA Championship and Pebble Beach for the U.S. Open uh, and, and the, for the British Open this year. Uh, Tiger shows that he can, and these other tournaments, when you're looking at him at, and when he was at the Genesis and slugging through, I mean, <laughs> the, the, the water, and I still, my feet are still hurting from that tournament and, and, and struggling. And people saying, well, Tiger's not there. He's, it's what he's always done. He's working on his shots. He's improving and he's building for the moment. Just like the Olympians, just like when Michael Phelps was there. Do you think Michael Phelps was watching it when Michael Phelps um, swims, his gunning and, and, and Usain Bolt. These people gear for the Olympics. They gear for the World Championships. They don't care what they do two weeks before the World Championships. They, they want their best playing to be at that biggest event. And that's what Tiger did. That's what Michael Phelps does. You say all the great ones, Michael Jordan, everyone. And that's just awesome to see that Tiger was able to put it all together. And as we had said before last week, he was able to have his intelligence and his ability and put it all together and win this tournament with a lot of people coming and challenging him. And, and now I, all the people say, well, Tiger won when there weren't any good golfers. Well, all these golfers that he was competing against have won majors. All these golfers are viewed as great. They've won tens of millions of dollars. They're phenomenal golfers and Tiger beat them again. So I think it's just, it's just uh, tremendous that it, I'm pumped. I was excited. I couldn't even sleep last night, and I can't wait to see the rest of the year. Can't wait. Um, we're just about 10 minutes away from uh, Todd Parnell. He's the president of the AA Montgomery Biscuits, also the CEO of the Richmond Flying Squirrels. He's gonna, we're going to talk a bunch of baseball with him. Real excited for that. Um, but let's do some NBA first, Ira. Uh, in the Eastern Conference uh, bracket, a couple of upsets uh, early on, and I really didn't see some of these coming. Let's, let's talk about it. Well, I mean, uh, they, I think, look, Philadelphia is having trouble. They they better tonight. They play in a, in about fifteen twenty minutes. Uh, Brooklyn Philadelphia is a heavy favorite over Brooklyn. Shouldn't even be a close series at all. But this is what happens if you're. I was comparing just to. They say take the taking your foot off the pedal, or how about if you're riding a bike and you're going downhill and you're not pedaling, then you go up a hill. You might get some benefit, but if you don't, if you're not pedaling when you're going uphill, then you're never going to get up that hill. And a lot of these teams at the end of the year have coasted, have rested their players. I said we just want to be healthy for the playoffs. And then it's time the playoffs come, and they're playing a team like Brooklyn that has been playing hard for the last, the whole season, especially like the last two yeah. months. And you're playing in a game with them, and they're like, they're at super speed, and you're just like getting in the, I'll just get used to it. And they, they got beat bad. I mean, the game was a disaster. Philadelphia looked awful. Uh, ben Simmons was, had one of the worst games. Their star point guard, he was four for nine for nine points for three assists. Embiid was still suffering from uh, injuries that, that he had. He was out of shape. And then he's on the bench, and he's looking at his cell phone. The Philadelphia fans are booing the team. 
this is a team. They are they are definitely paper mache. Like I don't think I thought Philadelphia was going to win. They're so much better than Brooklyn should be close. But after watching how hard Brooklyn played and watching how weak and how uh, how pathetic Philadelphia played, I think Brooklyn's going to win this series. I, I do. It's going to. I don't think Philadelphia has the mental fortitude. And Brett Brown. Now we're, I'd like to jump back to the the way game when we we're done running through the playoffs. But they played Philadelphia that night, and their coach was going nuts on the team. And he wasn't playing uh, two of their starters, and they were down by 30 to the Heat. And you just saw him just start screaming and yelling. I'm like, I, don't, I think he's lost his team. And I, I'm telling you, they don't win this series, or even if they win this series and lose the next, I think he's gone as a coach, and I think Philadelphia's bringing in another coach. You know, you're absolutely right uh, about that. And, and, yeah, Brooklyn looks hungrier. And they're not as skilled anywhere on the court, but they look like, you know, after watching that game, which I watched the whole thing, I'm thinking, wow, Philly's in trouble. Um, Let's talk about uh, the Magic and the Raptors. Even though the Raptors lost, you are not doubting Toronto the way we're doubting Philly. I still think Toronto's a team to take it. I think Toronto's going to win the East. Uh, Quali Leonard uh, made some big shots at the end. Remember, Toronto's problems have been that DeMar DeRozan wasn't wasn't making his big shots, but wow. I mean, Orlando, I saw Orlando play against the Heat also in the Bosch retirement game, and uh, they played hard, too. I mean, this team, is, all, is, a, is they play super hard like Brooklyn. They've been going down the wire trying to win these games, and D.J. Augustine, everyone says, oh, he's a backup point guard. Well, he started the entire year for them, but everybody keeps calling him a backup point guard, and he had this great dagger three at the end of the game to win it, and Lowry was 0 for 7, the point guard for Toronto. Now, I still think Toronto, this series, I think Toronto will get their act together. They'll end up winning it. They, probably, they might win it in five games or six games, but they'll come back. And then just jumping forward to the Celtics-Pacers series, uh, uh, Celtics won by 10. Uh, the Celtics have sort of righted the ship a little bit. They're gonna, they, they, but I, I don't think Pacers without Oladipo are not the team to challenge them. I mean, the Celtics' problem is going to be when they go against the Bucks in the next series, and, and Milwaukee sort of has a coasting. I mean, they're playing a Detroit team that has lost like nine of the last ten games. They just coasted in the playoffs like because the Heat were losing their game, and they won. They lost by 35. Milwaukee is going to easily sweep that series. Blake Griffin, the star for Detroit, is out for the whole series. And it's going to be, it looks like it's going to be Milwaukee and Boston. Uh, that one will, that, but I, and the other, the Magic Raptors, let's see what the Magic do. But I tell you what, that Brooklyn-Philly game series could go down to seven games. Um, what about the uh, what about the West? What's our takeaways here? I definitely think. Well, certainly, the I was shocked. Now it's weird what happened. When we had our show on Monday, on Tuesday, James Harden misses a free throw. The the Thunder win the game, and they went from going the Rockets went from being the two seed to the four seed. And it's like, well, what does it mean, two to four? Well, what it means is that they're going to play Golden State in the next round. Yeah. And a lot of people now think that the Rockets and the Warriors are the two best teams in the entire league, and they're going to play each other now in the next round. And the Rockets played the Jazz, and I thought the Jazz were going to give a much better fight. They had this weird way to guard James Harden. It was very funny. If you can see it again, they, 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 all, they said they forced him to go right. They actually literally guarded his left side and didn't let him go left at all because he likes to go left with the ball. And they just stopped him, and they said, please go right. Just stood there. And he still had a phenomenal game. He was tremendous. He had 29 points, 10 rebounds, 8 assists. Um, and, and play great. Uh, the Rockets had 97% of their points were either in the paint or three, and they, they, they beat the Jazz, and I was shocked. I really thought the Jazz were going to put up a better game than that. The Warriors destroyed the Clippers. Uh, Curry was tremendous, 38 points, 15 rebounds, 7 assists. One little thing people aren't talking about this Warriors series is that Curry is healthier now than he's ever been 
for their run. I mean, he's always been banged up a little, but he looks like he's playing great. Uh, Durant got two technicals in the game, and the one thing in the playoffs is that if you get seven technicals, you have to set out a game. The only thing that, and the Warriors have been getting technicals all year, that could be the only thing that could stop the Warriors is to get <laughs> technicals and have to be suspended, like Draymond Green was against the Cavs, so they have to be really careful about that. And then in the other side of the bracket, which is the Portland Thunder, Oklahoma City, everyone thought, you know, they're going to roll over Portland, Portland's just whatever, they're what, and Portland won, and Paul George looked very poor. He was shot 8 for 24 against Portland, and Westbrook had a triple-double. But it's just like, I thought Portland, that's going to be a seven-game series. That's going to be a great series. And the winner of that plays the Spurs against Denver. And San Antonio won the first game. They upset Denver. Denver was a two-seed, but I thought Denver was a fraud two-seed to begin with. They haven't really played well the second half of the season. I'm not sold. Joker only had 10 points, their star player. And San Antonio under Popovich, they found a way. They had Aldridge, DeRozan, White. They knew how to play that series. I like, I like, I like, I like San Antonio to win that series, and I'm even more confident after watching that first game that it's going to be the Spurs and either Portland or Thunder. Uh, but uh, it's a great opening weekend for the NBA. Uh, it's going to be a long playoff series. But, you know, I was excited about that and, uh, and, and from everything. Uh, Ira, we've got about four minutes until Todd Parnell um, joins us here. So let's talk a little bit, you know, I think if you weren't into golf, and even if you were, the other thing that was really big yesterday was Game of Thrones coming back for the final season. I'm a huge Game of Thrones guy. This is kind of what we've been seeing on the West Coast and the NBA, though. And, I mean, uh, Luke Walton's already got a new team. Everything's moving around. It's been uh, quite the soap opera out there. Unbelievable. And I was at the Laker game, and I said that on the air like about two months, three months and a half ago. I said, this, they're not embracing LeBron. Like, this team is like very, and then Magic comes out. Everyone loves Magic. And then Kobe gets the biggest ovation of them all. And then you have this whole big, Magic's only been the general manager for two years. First of all, you had Jim Buss run the team, who is, well, Jerry Buss was the greatest owner of all time. He created Showtime. He proved that you could win and be fun and sell your tickets out, even in L.A. So then, and he created that all. He passes away, gives his team to his daughter to run the business side and his son to run the basketball side, and they proceed to be horrendous. So then they're terrible. And finally, Jeannie Buss fires her brother, and then two years ago, and puts Magic Johnson in to run the team. Magic gets rid of uh, some of the bad contracts that had been signed. He drafts Lonzo Ball. And then last year, he was able to bring LeBron in, and, but he doesn't get any other free agent. And you get Paul George, and he, instead of bringing shooters around, he brought all these other, uh, um, like Rondo and Lance Stevenson, just ball handlers, but it just didn't fit in. Not like how LeBron's been playing, even in Miami when you had Ray Allen and Batty. I mean, everyone knows with LeBron, you just put three-point guys around him, let him shoot. He's going to drive everyone. Just what we talked about Zion last week. And they put all these guys who couldn't shoot, and then LeBron did not mix well with the young players. LeBron gets hurt. And then, of course, the trade deadline, he tried to, Magic tried to trade all the young players for Anthony Davis. It did fell through. The young players got depressed. LeBron got mad. And then what happened this week, the blindsided by everyone. I'm at the Wade game, and LeBron, uh, I mean, uh, I guess the story was that uh, Magic Johnson went to Jeannie Buss saying, I want to fire Walton. And she goes, I like Wooloo, but you can fire him. And he goes, I also want to fire the general manager, Palinka, who is the, uh, Kobe's agent. And Jeannie Buss said, no, you can't fire him. And then Magic then goes out instead of talking, just quits the next day uh, from it. So now it's like Palinka now 
Kobe is like in charge of the team per se and the business side, and people are going to see what's going to happen. But it is definitely Game of Thrones, and LeBron is now stuck in the Knicks because they might not get any free agents, and he's stuck on this team, and the fans don't like him, and it's uh, it's going to be exciting. But it definitely is. It was definitely something no one saw coming uh, the next to last day of the regular season. Uh, Ira, just about a minute until uh, Todd Parnell joins us here on Iron Sports. But real quick, you mentioned uh, Dwayne Wade's last home game. You were there. Tell us about it. Um, tremendous. I was at Kobe's last game as a Laker, Jordan's last game as a Bull, and now Dwayne's last game as a Miami Heat. Uh, I've gone to a zillion Heat games. I've never seen – I got there an hour and a half before the game. Lines to get in the game. Yeah, they don't do uh, that for playoff games. Before this, it started. <laughs> everyone was waiting for him. And, uh, yeah, John Legend, Christy Teigen, Gabe, Gabriel Union there on the front row. Uh, Wade spoke before the game. His son introduced him. Uh, it was, uh, you had during the game, you had Obama give a testimony, Barack Obama, President Obama gave a testimonial, Adam Silver, uh, Derek Jeter, who was booed. Uh, they showed highlights of Wade the whole game. And then the fourth quarter was great because Wade and Haslam went in the game together and Wade started doing <clears throat> three after three after three. He ended with 30 points. Um, it was pumped. The, the fans, by then, they knew that the Heat were eliminated. So this was really Wade's last game. People didn't realize it was going to be because if they had won, they might have made the playoffs. But they didn't, so they, but everyone was still pumped about that. Then he spoke after the game, almost hurt his knee jumping up on the, on the table. Uh, but just a great atmosphere for the game. Wade is, I think next week I'm going to talk a little bit more about his career and what he meant to the city. Uh, but it was just, uh, the, it was very moving and, uh, the fans love him. He's definitely the uh, toast of Miami. And I love the fact that he was able to come back to Miami and, and retire here and have this whole year, this retirement ceremony. He went up to Brooklyn for the final game and had a triple double. Uh, he's very well respected. I just, it's great that he didn't end his career like at a, at the Chicago Bulls or the Cleveland Cavalier. It was yep. perfect that he ended as a Miami Heat. All right, let's bring in Todd Parnell. He's the president of the Montgomery Biscuits, also the uh, COO of the Richmond Flying Squirrels of the Minor League Baseball. Todd, thank you so much for joining us here on Iron Sports. Hey, guys. Hope you're doing well. First of all, nobody calls me Todd anymore. My nickname's Parney. If you call me Todd, I think I got to sleep on the couch and I did something wrong. Parney, I, I, I mean, when I Googled <laughs> you, I did see that. I didn't know if we were on the level to call you Parney, but I'm, I'm glad that we're, we're on that level, my man. We're on that <laughs> level. So since we're on that level, I got to tell you. For about half a decade now, Montgomery Biscuits has been my, been my fantasy baseball team name. So I've been stealing that from you guys. I love the logo. I love the whole thing. Um, you know, first and foremost, I think baseball is weird in a sense that I think that the coaches and managers of the minor league teams have it a lot more difficult job than of the major league baseball teams. Um, you know, with developing talent, guys constantly moving and going. Can you tell us about the importance of coaching at the minor league levels? Well, I just started my 30th year as a minor league baseball executive uh, last week on our opening night here in Richmond, Virginia with the Flying Squirrels. I've been privileged to, to work alongside a lot of really talented people. And you're right, uh, their job is to get guys to the big leagues. In Richmond, we're celebrating our 10th season as the Richmond Flying Squirrels, and we've sent 64 players to the big leagues during that time. And the Giants, our major league affiliate, won three World Series during that time as well. So... I see it on a daily basis. You know, a lot of times the eight, nine, ten thousand fans that are in the stands don't understand, uh, you know, why they take a certain guy out with a pitch count or yeah. for whatever reason. But but they, you know, they have to uh, want to try to win because everybody wants to win rather than lose. But getting the Brandon Crawfords, the Joe Panics, the Brandon Belts of the world to the big leagues is is why they do it. Um, Ira, what do you have for Parney? 
Uh, Parney, I, I, again, thanks a lot for coming on our show. I, I've known you from Altoona in terms of your reputation. Uh, you know, as you said, in minor league baseball, you are now running two of the great uh, minor league franchises, double-A franchises. Um, one of the questions is that we're down here in Miami. I'm not in Miami, I'm in New York today, but we're down in Miami, and, and they're drawing six, 7,000 fans a game. And you have minor league teams that are out throwing the Miami Marlins. Um, in terms of your running, you have a tough job. You're actually in charge of working with the team and making sure you get the player development done right. But also you want to sell tickets and have an exciting environment for the fans. And minor league baseball is doing great across the country. Talk about in terms of what you do to make minor league, like people like you are the ones that are making minor league baseball and, and what the steps you do to make it such so popular uh, across America. Well, it's about the whole experience. It's about the food they eat. It's about uh, getting an autograph. It's about catching a foul ball about seeing the future major league stars and i've been saying it for years <clears throat> sometimes people make fun of me but we're not in the baseball business we're not in the entertainment business we're in the memory making business so anytime at any of our ballparks if we can make a memory for any of our fans in any shape way or form that's what we set out to do and uh, i always say that you got to have something for everybody not everybody loves baseball so they love something they see on the video love the funnel cake or the footlong hot dog or maybe they'll love the fact that uh, they'll see a former major league uh, player that they loved for a certain team managing the team and on the sidelines they get to meet them after the game or you know in our case in Richmond people like Will Clark and Lee Smith come around as roving roving instructors for the San Francisco Giants so I think that that's just it you got to have something for everybody and uh, you know if you are in the member making business you become a little uh a little proof against uh, the one loss record. Um, I mean, if you're making memories for families and people of all ages, if you lose eight or nine in a row, they're still going to come back because somehow you made a memory for them. So I think that's something I've learned through the years. Uh, but I think everybody sure would like to win more than they lose for sure, no matter what. So, and one of the things is there was a great article in Sports Illustrated uh, two weeks ago about the technology in baseball. And I was blown away by it. I mean, it was like, because some teams have totally embraced it, but it, it seems like now, and the one, the, the gist of the whole article is that, like, the John Lesters of the world really aren't looking at the technology and, and looking at But then these younger players that are coming up are like, they've, since they've been like 16 years old, every pitch they've been thrown has been tracked by some sort of computer, and they have all these different devices. And, and tell me about what, how, at your level, the AA level, that you're using the technology in order to track players' performance and improve their performances. Well, it's more it's more on the major league side of the, the major league and their minor league personnel, uh, the people that are quote unquote in the baseball operations offices and all the different major league teams that dictate what happens in the minor league markets. And you're exactly right, Howard. It, it's used a lot now. Back when I started 30 years ago, uh, we were lucky if we had a radar gun in the ballpark, <laughs> and, and now uh, we could pretty much dictate people's heart rate 24 hours a day if we want to. <laughs> Uh, but but everything changes, right? You know, Thirty years ago, when I started, we had a keg in the clubhouse, and, and and the players ate leftover hot dogs. And now uh, nobody would ever think of any of those things happening because nutrition is so important, and the players uh, really watch uh, what they eat and drink these days a lot more than they used to. And that's all part of uh, us gaining knowledge through the years, and you know, people realizing what's good for them and what's bad for them. But technology is definitely a part of it. I'm old enough that I just like guys that get people out and people that can hit. And I'm not very good at the technology, but my kids that are in their 20s, 
are very good at it. So I think it's just a little bit of a generational thing. And, uh, and you have some people that have been around a long time that are able to pick up on it a little bit better than others. And I guess, I mean, it's, I think double A is exciting because in many ways it's like you're still, I was, I'm used to the outside of triple A where the pirates were, they would send their players to rehab. And that was sort of like the jump from double A to the major leagues was, was, was that level. And in terms of you working in your triple in the double A, um, you see these young players in terms of coming up and, and what, and you certainly watch more game minor league games than anyone ever maybe what do you see i mean what what is the difference between a player that's going to maybe stay in double a maybe go to triple a but not really get to the majors and someone who is going to make that extra jump the guy that's going to be in the major leagues for seven or eight years what is it is it your like what what is that that character of that player that's going to be the difference between them being that major league player well this is going to sound really silly but the first thing's talent I mean, you can you can see in certain guys that they're just really, 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 really talented. I mean, years and years and years ago, uh, years ago, uh, I saw a kid named Verlander pitch in the minor leagues for yep. the Detroit Tigers, and he was moving in there ninety-eight, ninety-nine miles an hour. Uh, and there's another guy that was on that team that was throwing it really hard as well. And and that's the thing you see in the minor leagues. Uh, talent is the number one thing that you need. But you also got to have heart. You got to have desire. And some guys make it, and some guys don't. Uh, but but the word "it" is something that comes to mind. Also, a guy we had a guy named Scoot Rowland who was with the Phillies years ago, and he had it. He was 19 years old. He was the most mature player on the team. He made it to the Phillies the next year, uh, and he was in the big leagues before he could even legally drink a beer. And but he had <laughs> it. He knew when to talk. He knew when not to talk. And uh, that's that's that doesn't happen very often, but once in a while you see that special combination of a guy that has talent and a guy that has it all wrapped up into one. And Andrew McCutcheon is another one that we had when I was in Altoona with the Altoona Curve, and Kutch had it. He's going along to to have a wonderful career as well. Um, one of the things they're talking about in baseball today is you know Mike Trout does the commercials. Let the kids have. Boys have fun. I don't know what the thing is. Let the boys have fun, or let the kids have fun. And it, the, the, I guess the the battle between the traditionals to say, don't celebrate if you do anything. Don't flip your bat. How many times did you flip your bat when you hit the home run? And the others are saying, well, look, in basketball, <laughs> they're jumping up and down after every dunk. And in uh, and in any other sport, they're going crazy. What what do you see? What do you see? Where do you think this is battle is going to go between traditionalists and the people that want to say, let's celebrate like every other sport does? I think it all comes down to, to respect, right? And as, if this, you know, being happy and the celebrations are done with respect, I think that's fine. I think, you know, if I was a player, if I felt like somebody was disrespecting my teammate in some way, shape, or form, uh, I'd probably throw one at the ribs. But um, <laughs> you know, I, I think you can usually tell if it's if it's some if it's done in a proper way or an improper way. And you know, I, I think that. You know, people people react differently to different things these days. And I think the bottom line is this. There's a lot of guys out there that are getting paid way more money than they ever thought they'd make to play a game. And I think that if we all live a life of gratefulness and we wake up every day, and I do this, I wake up every day of my life and I get to go to a ballpark and I make a living doing that. And I'm grateful for that. So I think if we... If we do that, we're, we're not going to get caught up in all the all the stuff that sometimes breeds negativity. Well, Todd, this uh, I really appreciate you come appreciate you coming on this show. 
uh, for Iron Sports. And it's, thank you again. I, I think it's, I mean, what you're doing, as you said, you're make, you're in the memory business. And I know that from the outset of Curve, uh, the work you did there and, and to see that the players involved in the community and the fans interaction. And, and I, I hate when my friends say, Oh, I'm taking my, uh, son to a, a major league baseball game i'm like you live next to this minor league park and they're like four or five years old like i i mean when you're three four or five years old just take these kids to the minor league games don't they're gonna have just they're gonna have way more fun there than trying to go to a, a major league game well i've been really fortunate and blessed and thanks for having me on the show Ira. but to be able to do this for as long as i've done it and, and you know, hit you just on the big nine is not the last few holes uh, but but to drive to a minor league ballpark every day and say that's what you do for your life is you know, really been an honor and a privilege, and I'm blessed to do it every day. Well, th- thanks a lot for coming on, and uh, and good luck with both your teams uh, this season. Hey guys, as we say in Richmond, Virginia, with the flying squirrels, have fun, go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> he is Parney. Thank you so much for joining us here on Ira on Sports. Ira, you know, it's funny, you know, bringing up guys like uh, Brandon Crawford and Brandon Belt um, that he's seen, you know, come up through the Richmond Flying Squirrels. How cool is that? You know, like that's one of the things we do take it uh, for granted, I think, that we've got minor league parks right here, you know, four teams playing here, and you can see the next superstars. You know, there was a point where Jose Altuve would have been playing here, but you just don't know unless you go, and that's why you're one of the people who takes in more minor league games than anyone I know. Well, I like minor league baseball, spring training baseball, spring training. all those things. I mean, I think it's it's uh, it's great to see, and you always want to see. I, I mean, I remember when I saw. I mean, I've seen so many of these great players when in Altoona, and I saw them when they were like, "Is that way?" You're like, "Oh, that guy's gonna be great." And then when they become great, you're like, "I remember I saw Alfonso Soriano hit this home run, or Ryan Howard hit this home run." So it's really cool. And I I say the same thing about college basketball and about minor league baseball. Um, the idea is that if you have young kids, it's the best place to go because these these these, these players are not full of themselves. I mean, they don't know. They'll sign autographs. They're going to give you batting gloves. They're going to they're going to talk to you. They're going to they're going to beat you at a restaurant if you're seeing them at a restaurant. They're not going to like brush you up and not give you an autograph because they they know that maybe two years from now they, no one's going to want an autograph for them. They're just thankful that somebody wants their autograph. So it's like great. I think that aspect of sports. I'm glad Todd. He's really one of the greatest. Uh, general managers in minor league baseball history, considering he's running these every franchise he's run has been they they are successful on the field, they develop talent, and they have great attendance uh, uh, for all their both of their teams, Montgomery, Alabama, this now, and also Richmond, Virginia. All right, Ira. Before we wrap it up, um, you are a huge fan of uh, boxing, MMA, all types of fighting, and you think that Lomachenko he should be the next big thing. I want to say something. I watched that fight. It was like Saturday night. I watched them. I. I Lomachenko is so good. I mean, he's viewed as one of, no one talks about him, but he's, let's, I'm going to say this, he is becoming like Floyd Mayweather with like a Mike Tyson punch because he, last couple of uh, fights, his shoulder was bothering him, so he was sort of just like fighting like Mayweather was. But he got shoulder surgery, like, and he was talking about Tiger getting surgery. He said he feels 100%, and he fought a very good fighter, Anthony Crolla, who he's favored on, but destroyed him in four rounds. I mean, it's, it's, it, and when you read, I read every comment, you know, talk about the fight, that every, almost every boxing person says he is the number one pound for pound fighter right now. I mean, it's a universal. So it is, it, unfortunately, he fights at 135. He fights at lightweight. He's not from America. So we don't know him that well, but what a great fighter. I mean, he's now being talked about as one of the greatest fighters of all time, let alone the best fighter pound for pound right now. Uh, next And this weekend, Terrence Crawford uh, fights Amir Khan on the ESPN Saturday night from Madison Square Garden. And Crawford is at uh, 147. 
in terms of welterweight, and that should be another good fight. Amir Khan's a very good veteran. Uh, Terrence Crawford is viewed as another one of those top three or four uh, fighters as the best pound-for-pound fighter. So this is a nice, good time for boxing in terms of some really good fights. It's usually right before uh, in April, May. Uh, usually you have the best fights uh, of the year. All right, before we wrap this up, Ira, NHL playoffs are in full swing. Hopefully we could talk a little bit more about this uh, in the coming weeks. Shocker to everybody, uh, arguably the best team I've seen since the Penguins of the mid-'90s, the Tampa Bay Lightning. They're down three games and nothing versus Columbus. And, you know, close near and dear to your heart, your Pittsburgh Penguins are in the same boat against what is, what is a good Islanders team. I mean, it, this isn't the – this isn't the, the – uh, uh, Pittsburgh teams of, of you know, half a decade ago where they were just crushing everybody. The Islanders are a good team, but you guys are uh, facing elimination as well. How are you feeling about that? Well, I just think it's, it's, it's what hockey is. I mean, these fights, again, I think they're getting into the same thing in basketball. And uh, a lot of these teams at the end of the year, they know they made the playoffs, and the whole goal was get healthy, get healthy, get healthy. And you see them in the, in the NFL. I mean, that's why Belichick plays to the final game of the season. When, when you're in a mode and how you play – and you decide, and suddenly you take your foot off the gas, you, you put the pedal, take the feet off the pedals, and it's hard to get back going and to be playing at a high level. And that's what both uh, Tampa Bay and Pittsburgh are finding, that uh, that they're just having trouble staying in this. And I mean, it's, it's the Tampa Bay situation is crazy because they scored, they were up 3-1 in the first game, and I think they've been outscored like 15 goals to two or some crazy numbers since then, and that's why they're down 3-0. Now, the one thing in hockey is that teams have come back from 3 down 3-0 to come back, but uh, it's shocking. I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, what if we said Golden State is down 3-0 to the Clippers? I mean, that would be crazy, yeah. but it, uh, it's, it's just shocking in, in hockey, and, and we definitely, we're going to want to bring some good guests on over the next couple of weeks to give us more insight into hockey but, uh, in terms of the playoffs, but, the, the, you know, these teams, I think it's people are going to, I think these teams are going to change their thought process of coasting to the playoffs after seeing these upsets in the first round and, uh, and, and especially the Tampa Bay situation. We are clearly out of time. I want to thank so much uh, John Graham for popping by Ira on Sports. Also, Todd Parney Parnell had some great guests today. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. Ira on Sports.